It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says someone mutters and the street lamp gutters. Soon it will be morning. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, we're all back together again. Yay! Oh, it's been a little while. Yeah, you, like, it's been a quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, I forgot how small this table is when there are three people around it. Well, th- we had three one time while you were gone. Oh, that's we right. had uh, that's right. Holly on. Holly was on. She was great. Oh, she you was. listened? Of course I did. Oh, I'm glad. Yes, yes Holly Holly is always wonderful. Yep. So, uh, it's, it's a great memory of mine to think back on Holly in that episode. You know... Now that you say the word memory... Yeah, almost as if it were a segue. I recall something. <laughs> uh-huh. It's a memory I have yeah. about a thought I had about memories. Well, I remember that. So let me take you all back to a couple months ago, I Please think. do. Okay. Or it might have been a couple years ago. I don't know. My memory's not very good. <laughs> when I was researching the brain-to-brain communication video that mm-hmm. I wrote, that was a video episode we did a while back, and it was about the idea of people communicating without words from brain to brain. So in one of the experiments described in the video, they had two people sitting in rooms in different buildings and they were using a combination of an EEG cap Mm -hmm. on one end and then a transcranial magnetic stimulation device on the other end to have one person cause the other person's brain to press a button. Right. So, That's kind of cool. The brain actually caused the person's finger to push the button. That's right. Well, the brain brain caused the the other person's brain to cause the person's finger to press the button. Exactly. As opposed to the brain itself pushing the button. Just want to make like leaping out through the ear and going beep. Right. Yeah. Which would have been crang, crangish. Yeah. But yeah, the 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 idea being in that video, you you were we were taking that concept of a direct brain to brain communication and saying, what if this could be extended to the point where. Uh, someone could transfer an entire brain state to someone else, right? Sure. We don't know the ultimate 
end of what can be shared from brain to brain. Because this example in this video that we talked about was very basic. It's, it's essentially just a one-bit impulse. Right. It's saying, press now, you know, right. like action, do something. Mm-hmm. But what the most optimistic advocates of brain-to-brain communication were saying was that one day – based on these same technologies, just taken to a much more complex level, you might actually be able to share really complex contents of the brain, such as skills, like you could train somebody on a skill. Like I know Kung Fu. Right, just with a brain transfer, you can put that knowledge brain state into their brain. Mm -hmm. Or you could share a memory of yours directly into somebody else's brain without words. Going like, oh, I, I had, I saw this beautiful sunset once. Here you go. Right. Yeah. Including the emotions I experienced when I saw this thing. Sure. And to be honest, we don't know if something like that is possible or not. It might be, it might not be, but I actually thought about this problem a lot. And while I certainly wouldn't say it's impossible to have somebody else's memories beamed into your brain, I do kind of wonder. Mm-hmm. Because let's imagine how this would work. Uh, let's say you're trying to transfer a memory of when you were at a birthday party, when you were seven years old, and you were handed a little paper plate with a piece of birthday cake on it, and there was a big scorpion sitting on that piece of birthday cake. This is where we learn how terrible Joe's childhood was. It rained every time there was a pool party. Now, <laughs> now, if you have a videotape of this event, it would be easy to transfer a video file from one computer to another, right? Right. Uh, assuming it's a common, easily read file type and you have the right libraries, codecs, whatever, to translate the file. Right. But the reason you need something like a codec is that there are potentially infinite number of ways visual information like video could be encoded as information for storage and transfer, right? Mm-hmm. So if you had a video of this event on your hard drive, there wouldn't be a little picture of a piece of birthday cake with sprinkles and big happy scorpion sitting on it somewhere inside your computer. It would just be a file like any other file, long string of data bits, right. ones and zeros. We know how mm-hmm. that goes. Uh, mm-hmm. That some kind of program then compiles or, or kind of filters down into a single image yeah, or yeah. a series of images, rather. Exactly. So the reason we have common file types and codecs and stuff is so all of our computers can agree on how to translate these bits of data into colored pixels on a screen or vice versa from recording them from a lens. Mm-hmm. But our brains don't have common file types yet, do right. they? No, they don't. Well, you know, we not don't, that we are we can't even aware de- of. We can't even describe the file types that are there. <laughs> right. We don't even fully understand how episodic memories are encoded in the brain. And by episodic memories, I mean something like that, like recalling a particular event and what happened. Right. And as, how it made you feel. Yeah, yeah. All things like that, as opposed to what we might call semantic memories, which are more like remembering how to do something or remembering what a fork is for or or what a scorpion can do to you or something. Brewing your par- <laughs> birthday party when you're seven, I right. imagine. Uh, so when you think about it, describing your memory in words to another person is sort of one crude way of translating or converting a memory file type across possibly incompatible file types, right? Mm. It's like a converter program in a way. But, of course, some aspects of the experience can always be lost when you're transferring a memory this way. That's why we find ourselves saying things like, well, I guess you really had to be there. Right. So something gets lost in this translation. So it's it's even it goes beyond even the the analogy that we could draw is imagine that we're in the early days of computers where every computer is its own individual type of thing. And, and the type of computer I own and the type of computer Lauren owns, and the type of computer Joe owns are all different types. Right. We don't all have Mac OS or Windows. They're or not intercompatible. There's no way for me to send the work that I do on mine onto yours and have it mean anything. They're all based on different uh, operating systems. And so I have I might have something on my machine and I want to share it with you two, but I'm kind of stuck because I don't have a way of doing that. Unless you say, hey, come over and look directly at my screen, which right. there's no analog for in, in, in human brain memory yeah. stuff. Yeah. And oh, also, wait, no, hold on. There's that consciousness binding machine we talked about. <laughs> well, no, wait, I dreamed that. Sorry. <laughs> I was about to say, like, <laughs> I'd love to share the, this dream with you all. Is that the other episode you recorded <laughs> while I was on vacation? Uh, no, I was going to also say, though, that even even this example with the analogy. It's it's not um, it's not completely accurate because with a computer we could actually point to the 
the the file name and say this represents that memory. We can't do that in the brain to the extent where we can identify a specific uh, series of neurons and say this represents that memory. Yeah, that's totally true. We don't know if in theory we could one day do that. Uh, we certainly can't do that now. And we don't know if we could do it, if that would be in any way transferable. Very good point. Now, on the other hand, in favor of the idea of sort of technological compatibility for organic memories, when we record, store, and recall memories, I think we all agree that something physical is happening in the brain. Yeah. Like, even if you're a dualist and you believe, you know, that there's something uh, sort of like supernatural, a soul or something going beyond the brain, I think even most people who think this don't think that memory encoding and recall is a supernatural process. Uh, yeah, I think everyone agrees that it's a more than the sum of its parts kind of situation, but something that we hypothetically eventually will be able to suss out. Yeah, it is It is a physical thing that happens in the brain. If it's a physical thing that happens in the brain, then it can, in theory at least, be measured and recorded by scientific instruments. I'm not sure if it can be without killing the brain, <laughs> <laughs> but at least it is, uh, in theory, possible to see, okay, here are the physical states of every single cell in the brain and what they're doing in relationship to each other. So you should be able to record what the physical reality of a certain memory being recalled is. Uh, yeah, once we get to the point where we have the data capacity, just the thoroughput, really, to to watch all of those things carefully enough to designate them. Yeah, sure. And so if we accept that the basis of all our memories is some kind of physical fact about the brain, and those physical facts can be measured, then shouldn't all of our memories be somehow recordable from the outside? Well, maybe and maybe not. So yeah. I, I thought we should look at this question today and sort of examine the field of memory and technology and see what we can reasonably say about where technology and memory meet. Will we one day be able to record our memories onto computers? Will we be able to share them between brains without words? And what the future of memory and technology is? And, and these are all, you know, really cool questions to ask. And w w we've already mentioned it before in the episode, but there's so much that we don't know about the brain and how memory works that this is going to be largely speculative. We're going to try mm -hmm. and lay the foundation of what we understand about memory. But honestly, we are on the very first steps of a very – what could be a very long journey. We don't even know how long the journey will be, <laughs> right? We we have no idea. Oh, right, right. Uh Plenty of researchers are working on this kind of stuff, and we'll talk about a few of them later on in the podcast. But first, first, let's talk about what we solidly do know about how memory is encoded in the brain. Okay, well, it's going to be short. All right, so uh, yeah, that word "solidly" is a little the solidly. Uh, you you can you encounter things and you process them, and later you can recall. A simulation of the thing that happened. Oh, we're, we're pretty sure that we know a little <laughs> bit more than that. A little bit more. There actually has been some very recent uh, information coming out from a study that I think, Joe, you, you came across a blog on, on the, the idea about something that could uh, really shake up the, the idea of how memories are stored in the brain. But we'll get to that in a second. So first of all, we generally talk about three uh, – phases of memory. We talk about the encoding of memory, the storage of memory, and the retrieval of memory. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really a complex construction of the results from multiple regions of the brain all working together to encode a memory and store it. So memory, remembering things and, and forming new memories is very similar to thinking in general. It involves multiple regions of the brain working in concert. So it's not like there's one part of your brain and that's the memory factory and that's all it does. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of stuff that works together to do this. Now, there are some facilitators that are really important in the encoding of memory. So first, we have to perceive something in order to form a memory of some sort. Sure. You uh, see the scorpion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, not just the scorpion. You also see the cake. Yeah, you feel the plate. Uh -huh. you, you hear the children screaming. You, you, the the the, <laughs> the smell of cake and scorpion enters your nostrils. All uh -huh. these things are collectively part of that experience. And you have an emotion of, I wanted that cake, or maybe, 
I wonder if scorpions are edible. I mean, who knows what's going through your mind? Yeah. So uh, those perceptions are integrated into a single experience. And the hippocampus plays a big part in this. The hippocampus is kind of working uh, as a manager, pulling all this this these separate lines of data and integrating them into what will eventually be turned into the memory. Um and that pretty much is the collection of all the perceptions that define that experience, right? Now, here's where we start getting into things that we believe are going on, but we don't know for sure because we don't fully understand the workings of the brain. So experts think that the hippocampus and the frontal cortex tag team together to sort through these integrated experiences that the hippocampus has pulled together and determine which ones are keepers and which ones you can toss away. <laughs> So in other words, we've got stuff happening around us all the time. Much of it we are not consciously aware of because we're not focusing on that at the moment. Mm -hmm. Or or if we are consciously aware of it, we're not going to remember it later. Yeah, we're not. There was nothing going on up in that corner of the room. So we can just blot it right out. Yeah, that's just a gray spot in the memory. There's nothing like, you know, it may turn out that. Uh, there was actually something going on over there. There was a pinata on fire, but that was not important to the moment where the scorpion was <laughs> sitting there on your cake. So it doesn't factor into your memory. It wasn't encoded. Um, so if it's not encoded, it just kind of fades away. You know, it just, it, so the frontal cortex and the, the hippocampus together are saying, all right, this is what's important for this memory. This is what we're going to store for later. All this other stuff we're going to leave behind. And it's important so you don't get overloaded with all the data around you all the time. But then, of course, from our experience, you can think about how even that is not necessarily a totally clear distinction. I mean, think about all of the things you experience that you probably yourself wouldn't be able to recall clearly just out of the blue. But if somebody sort of like repeated it to you, you know, said like, hey, remember when Jonathan said X, Y and Z? Mm hmm. You might be like, oh, yeah, that seems familiar. I think he did say that. Yeah, or the same sort of thing that when you encounter a smell that's similar to one that that played a really important part in a memory of yours, it brings that back. So for me, uh, for example, the one that I will always associate with a particular part of my life is the the smell uh, that you get when you go to like a giant indoor pool. The, mm-hmm. the yeah, chemicals and yeah. everything, like mm-hmm. that immediately takes me back to swimming lessons when I was a little kid. Doesn't matter how old I get. As yeah. soon as I smell it, boom, I'm back there. It smells like summer break. Uh, it smells mm-hmm. like the Gainesville College Pool uh, and uh, and and the terror that I experience on a <laughs> weekly basis going to swimming <laughs> lessons. Uh, so, you know, that's the sort of stuff that that like oh. it, it just it keys into those those uh, little memories. And we'll talk a little bit more about what we think is happening when that goes on. Uh, well, sure, because the, the memory doesn't exist. I mean, the same way that a video file isn't a series of physical images inside your computer somewhere. Uh, that's not how it does. And that's not how the brain does either. It's it's a series of electrical impulses or electrochemical impulses, rather. Yeah, it's it's these electrochemical reactions in the brain. I mean, we're talking about neurons that are communicating with these uh, various hormones and electrical chemical reactions. It's really complicated. We don't have a full understanding of it. But uh, our brains are really plastic, right? So when we encounter new material, it starts shuffling stuff around to incorporate it. Sometimes it's a means of comparing a new experience to one that you have already had. This is important for memory. It's an important thing about our survival, right? Mm -hmm. Because let's say you've encountered something that nearly killed you, and then later on in life you encounter it again. It's important that you remember that it nearly killed you the last time. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of the way that a particular smell can, uh, like the smell of a food that you got really sick off of. Yeah. Or uh, tequila or et cetera, whatever it happens to be (laughs) that it was, um, will will, uh, turn you off. Later in the future. Right. So repeating. Exper- As opposed to later in the past. Sorry. <laughs> Please go ahead. Repeating an experience multiple times reinforces these electrochemical reactions and in, in the order that they happen and in the patterns that they form. So there's one kind of a prevailing theory, at least for a very long time anyway, that memories are essentially these, these, um, networks of neurons that represent the collective perceptions integrated into that experience. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's a it's a p- 
pathway of electrochemical signals across a series of those neurons. Right, right. Pathway action, right? Yeah, it's it's a synaptic thing, right? You're looking at the actual electrochemical reactions across series of synapses. Uh, So... That was like the that's like the large theory about the idea of you form a memory, you have this experience, a your brain uh, encodes it, and it is translated across this series of neurons through these synaptic communications, mm-hmm. and that represents the memory. And every time you remember, you are essentially constructing that same pathway, that same series of of communications yeah. all over again. The little the little thought car just kind of dashes straight across that that same pathway. Right. It's the it's not the destination; it's the journey theory of memory. Right. right. Sure. Sure. Uh, but there is a recent study that's kind of challenged that, right? Yeah. This was the one that I was talking about that Joe had shared with us before the the podcast, where the story is that. It might not just be the synapses that are important. It may be the neurons themselves have undergone some kind of change that mean that the neurons have something of the memory in them. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm being so vague with the language is because we don't have the full understanding of it. We merely have seen an experiment that tests this hypothesis. With sea slugs. With sea slugs. Yay, sea slugs, because sea slug brains and human brains are so similar. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the human. So <laughs> the, the experiment was that they did conditioning with sea slugs with mild electric shocks. There's going to be a lot of mild electric shocks in this episode. Uh, for better or worse, but at any rate, the sea slugs. I'm uh, sure they liked it. It's fine. Yeah. Well, they they were they they learned to withdraw from the shocks. Okay. What other flavor of electrical shocks are, are there? Is there there's, is there's there hot and there's spi- fiery and si- spicy verde? There's nuclear <laughs> three mile island shocks. Um, so the slugs the slugs learn to withdraw from these electric shocks, and then the researchers. Uh, they they inhibited the synaptic connections. They disrupted the synaptic connections that were associated, they thought, with the formation of the memory. Hey, this thing will hurt you. Go away from it. But they they observed the slugs were still withdrawing, even though the synaptic uh, pathways had been disrupted. So that led them to the conclusion that perhaps the neurons themselves must have something to do with memory hmm. formation, and it's not just the synaptic passageways. And possibly, we would might be able to use that information in the future to treat people who have certain types of memory problems, where the neurons are healthy, but the synapses uh, are no longer communicating. They, they, the thought is, perhaps the memories are not lost, they just can't be accessed. Completed, huh. right. So wow. that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but again, this is early days, right? That's so crazy. The idea that you could have potential memories in your brain. Yeah. That just, you just can't, you can't recall them, but they're there. Wow. That's a possibility. Now, whether or not that's actually true, it's still too early to say, but it is an interesting hypothesis. And it may very well be that the actual reality is some combination of the things we already thought we knew and this new emerging information, mm-hmm. it's probably a combination of the two. And because, uh, you know, it's it can be pretty complex stuff. The idea being here that that it's it's very difficult, very challenging to talk about how technology is going to interact with our memory when we don't fully understand the actual uh, process of, of creating those memories in the first place. What we do know is that memory memory is malleable. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the that pathway that a memory sort of exists on changes every time, changes very slightly every time you call up that memory. Yeah, it can potentially change a great deal. But most of the time, it's little details, mm-hmm. uh, things that either get embellished. Like when, when you are remembering, you are reconstructing. You're not really... Uh, you're, it's not the same as going into a filing cabinet and pulling out uh, the file marked whatever your memory is seven seven year uh, seventh birthday. Yeah, party. yeah. It's it's not like it's not like playing a tape. It's like a reconstructing frame by frame. Yeah, I, I likened it to imagine that you are putting on a play, and the script it represents the original event. The play is the the uh, you you recalling the event every time you see a play. If you go see a play more than once, you will notice that there are little differences in each performance just because there are a lot of different parts that come along with any play. Uh, and because humans are bad at repeating precise actions 
precisely. Yeah, yeah, you can't do it exactly every single time, right? Yeah, and then some people's brains are like going to see a play where you've got those actors who work by beats instead of, you know, they're like, oh, the script isn't important. Yeah, but more, but but either way, you know, you're you're going to see have a different experience each time. It might not be significantly different. You it's might just say words. You might say when you walk out, like, oh, you know, I liked it better the the second time than the first time, and I can't really, you know, there were little changes that were different. Same sort of thing when you're remembering, and your brain tends to fill in gaps too. So when you are remembering something and perhaps the the connections aren't going straight through the way they did when you first formed this memory. Uh, your brain's like, well, let's just what'll work. Let's just Fred. Just Fred was there. Burp. We're putting Fred into this memory now, and then suddenly Fred's at your seven, seventh uh, birthday party, even though you didn't meet Fred till you were nine. That might happen, um, and you might talk to Fred later and say, "You remember when you were, you were at my seventh birthday party?" He's like, "Dude, I, I didn't didn't know you when you were seven. And it will. Then you're like, oh, and you're like, weird. oh, I could have sworn you were there. Yeah. So memory is not is not. This permanent type of thing, it changes every single time we remember. And knowing that it changes doesn't affect that that fact, right? Yeah, you can't you can't concentrate into Yeah, you can't remember really hard <laughs> and get the truth of it. That doesn't work that way. Which is both amazing and terrifying to me. In um, fact, probably the stress of trying to force yourself to remember correctly would make you uh, forget in, more. Yeah, add in more uh, superfluous details that didn't actually happen. So good luck with that, guys. Yeah. So one of the things I thought was interesting about all this when I was looking into the encoding and the the storage and the retrieval bit is that it really made me think that Sherlock Holmes, at least the 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 Benedict Cumberbatch version of Sherlock Holmes, is pretty much a, a you know. A, as fictional as you can get in the sense that here's a here's a character who can walk into a situation and apparently instantaneously perceive everything that's going on everything appears to have equal importance in that perception and uh and also he has incredible retention uh now when we talk about storing memories there are three different storage phases right there's the sensory stage which only lasts a fraction of a second that's the thing that allows an experience to linger after the experience itself has ended so if there's a flash of light that's what allows that flash of light to remain in your memory long enough for it to go to short-term memory short-term memory is something that lasts about 30 seconds you can usually hold about seven things into your short-term memory for about 30 seconds and then that's about the max of it uh, Sherlock Holmes apparently can hold an infinite amount of information and retrieve it within those 30 seconds no problem he well might. I mean his forehead is very tall that is true I was thinking he might be using one of those memory palace things right like the mnemonic devices that right. have you construct a well never mind I don't want to get a sidetrack anyway so the, the long-term memory, is as far as you can we know it's it's limitless you can store an infinite number of memories in long term memory at least there's no way there's we've never been able to define a limit to it so if you were able to you know see something and then remember a long-term memory associated with that thing, that's different. That's why Sherlock Holmes can come in, see a color of dust on a person's shoe and say, oh, that person was in such and such because that's something that's in my long-term memory, not my short-term. Uh, but just being able to perceive everything at once and have it have meaning, that I would question. At any rate, uh, that is the storage part. Retrieval, as we talked about already, that's where you're constructing the memory each time you remember. You're not, you're not going to pull a file, you are building that file all over again. So if we go with that file example, instead of you pulling the file and reading a, a report, you sit down with a blank sheet of paper and you write the report out again from memory. <laughs> That's essentially what what, a what is happening is. in your brain. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about how technology uh, can interface with memories already or, or interfere with memories, uh, as the case may be. So again, very much kind of cutting edge technology and and science on this stuff uh and and even when we don't fully understand the mechanics of memory we can still do stuff to mess with it <laughs> which is kind of again awesome and terrifying at the well, same that's time always oh. the first step of figuring yeah, out yeah. how something works is going like eh, let's see what happens if we oh oh nope that was bad yeah, well mm -hmm. yeah i mean that seems much easier like if for a while people couldn't figure out how the ancients built the pyramids but it wouldn't be that hard to knock them over <laughs> 
I just think of uh, I just think of uh, the the Buckaroo Bonsai. No, no, don't touch that. You don't know what that's connected to right. during neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, connected to that scorpion birthday party. Yeah. yeah. Well, w- yeah. One of the things I was looking into was really an interesting uh, project. DARPA funds it. Uh, that's a study that's done by the University of Pennsylvania that's looking into the possibility of using deep brain electrical stimulation to help encourage memory formation. So this would be for people who suffered traumatic brain injuries uh, or TBIs as they are referred to. Sometimes, you know, we're talking about stuff that's happening in the brain. Sometimes when you suffer brain damage, part of the damage is the inability to form memories. It can happen to some people. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, the, there's this study out of the University of Pennsylvania looking into using tiny electrical shocks in the brain toward the, the area of the hippocampus in order to help facilitate the formation of memories so that people who have suffered these kind of injuries will be able to continue having, a, a, you know, a, a more independent life and be able to form memories the way they would before the injury had happened. So that's pretty interesting. And again, it's one of those things where because we know a little bit about how memories are formed, we're able to take these these kind of fairly primitive steps in the grand scheme of things. Um, we've also talked about inhibiting the formation of memories on forward thinking, specifically in the video series in 2014, June of 2014. So as we record this, it's almost a year since that video went live. Um it, I talked about some scientists who were looking into uh, inhibiting or in, uh, doing what they would call an inception memory, installing a memory into mice. And now we come back to the mild shocks. Tell us all about it. Okay, so they, Shock, shocks verde. <laughs> yes, they would. <laughs> they took the mice. They put them into a container that had a floor that could uh, give a mild electric shock. Okay, not, not the verde kind. Um, to the little mice feet, okay, which the mice did not like. Sure. Aww. The mice associated that particular box with being shocked. And so if you ever took the, mi- the mouse out of its happy little safe container and put it into the shock-o-matic container, the mouse would get distressed. It would hide in the corner and freeze and shiver. It was pathetic. Uh, then... <laughs> Because scientists are supervillains in the James Bond style. Let's see what happens when we take away the, the puppy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good old Egon getting into it. Uh, so what they did was they they used optogenetics. They actually altered the mice brains so that they could uh, put um, fiber optic lines into them and shine light on specific uh, neurons that they had implanted mm-hmm. that had this sort of photoreceptive uh, uh, reaction so that when light was shined on them, they would uh, they would essentially spark the same pathway that the mice had formed when they were in the shockomatic box. Then they would put the mice into a new environment that was not the shockomatic box. So the mice had no reason to associate it with being hurt. Sure, they shined the light on that particular region of the brain so that the mice were remembering getting shocked, even though they hadn't been shocked in that room, and they behaved as if. The room was uh, going to be the shockomatic box again. Wow! So they were having this kind of uh, this this new environment. They're they're remembering something that had happened hadn't happened in this new environment. They associate with the new environment and behave the same way. Um, it's interesting and terrifying. Again, like uh, whenever we get into memory, this is where I start thinking like, cause there's so much of ourselves that's wrapped up in memory and the thought of changing or inhibiting that is uh, kind of brings a lot of questions about how permanent is the self as well. <laughs> so, right. Well, I mean, all of the movies and stuff that deal with this all have kind of dystopian plots. So yeah. <laughs> we just imagine this would be used to implant false memories and and make us pawns of an evil scheming corporation or, or government. Or force bad memories on other people a la Strange Days or... Yeah. You still haven't seen that, have you? No, I haven't we seen need Strange to fix Days. That. Yeah. Okay. There's also, uh, I mean, they also looked into suppressing memories as well to try and 
to remove the association of pain with the shock box. <clears throat> That's also part of the, the study. I, I like to think that they did that so that the mice could finally go back to, to normal, stress-free lives. But yeah. that probably wasn't the actual purpose. Probably not. Now, I, I wanted to mention, this isn't entirely on topic, but it is related to technology and memory. There have also been a lot of people writing about the possibility that uh, technology is taking the the need for us to remember uh, away from a lot of in a lot of cases because we've got a place where we can store that information that's not in our heads so we can offload memory yeah yeah that we've basically uploaded our processing systems to whatever device we're using at the time and therefore we don't need to remember phone numbers or our division tables or yeah or or a specific events people who are just looking at an event through their camera and taking photos, there's an argument to be made that, uh, in fact, there have been studies that have, have shown this, that people who are taking the photos have a harder time remembering details about the stuff they took the photos of because their brain said, oh, I don't need to remember that. We have a record of it. So these things that you're not taking pictures of, I'm totally going to concentrate and remember details. But this other thing that you took a picture of, I don't. We, we've got the picture. Why do I need to remember <laughs> and, and I mean, I know it sounds weird that I'm putting it that way, but that's really what the studies found. So it was kind of interesting. They they did this by taking people through a museum and they had them look at all these different exhibits. And at some exhibits, they weren't told which ones ahead of time. They were told, oh, take a picture of this one. And then at the end of it, they said, all right, we want you to describe each of these exhibits that you saw. And the ones that people took pictures of had the least amount of detail Huh? out of all the ones. That that's they some fascinating at. psychology, especially since uh – in in general, I think researchers have kind of poo-pooed the idea that that developing technologies are removing our capacity to to think. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I mean, because like people have been arguing since like Aristotle, right? That, the idea is Google making us stupid. Yeah, yeah. Oh, if you teach Nicholas people Carr. to read, how will they ever remember anything? You know, yeah. right? Well, yeah. I mean, we've we've been using offloading memory technology from even before reading. You you had like you know the one smart person probably in your in your local group who could mm -hmm. remember everything yeah, yeah. for you. If Remind you me if this berry is poisonous or not, yeah. Phil. If you didn't yeah. have that one smart person, you didn't have a group for very long. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, or the other way of putting it is like I offload a lot of memories onto Rachel and she, I'm sure, offloads some memories onto me. Like we remember things for each other. This is the problem is that I offload my memories to Tybalt and he being a puppy is incapable of <laughs> – giving me any meaningful backup whatsoever. But he's adorable. All right, let's talk about fMRIs. You know, you can't have a good discussion about the brain without talking about some fMRI, or fMRI, as I like to call it. <laughs> so please, what, tell us all about fMRI. Well, for some number of years, the Stanford neuroscience and psychology professor Anthony Wagner has been developing techniques that use brain scans to detect, wait for it, not the objectively defined contents of a person's memory, but whether someone is currently experiencing a memory. And that might sound kind of unimportant, but it's actually not. It might be more interesting than it sounds, and here's why. So imagine this. You put me in an fMRI scanner. Easy. And that, yeah, well, I know you always want to cram me into metal boxes, but. <laughs> Uh, fMRI, of course, stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, and that's uh, that's a device that measures brain activity in real time by detecting like increases or decreases of blood flow in regions of the brain. So it can be useful for showing what parts of the brain people are using when they're given a certain stimulus or, or engaging in a certain activity or having a reaction. And so you put me in the fMRI. I am sure you're very pleased with this, but then you've got more in store for me. You show me pictures of faces of people who will be attending a party with me later this evening. Uh, it might be a scorpion cake party or some other kind of party. That part doesn't really matter. What matters is the pictures. Some of the pictures are of strangers, and some of the pictures are of people that I have seen or met before. Now, 
although lots of complex things are going on in my brain at any given time and, and even in the process of memory recall, Wagner's method could potentially analyze my fMRI scans and determine when I was looking at someone I had previously made memories of, thus it's seeing in my brain memory retrieval activity, or someone I had never seen before, and thus it saw the brain activity associated with perceiving novel information. And the system they came up with for doing this actually got pretty darn good. Yeah, uh, well, in cooperative subjects. Right, and we'll get back to that. Uh, right, but but so by, by gathering data on what it looks like when a whole lot of different subjects have experienced a memory versus learned new information, Wagner's team built an algorithm that can identify when a new subject is retrieving a memory with like 75 to 95% accuracy. That's that's pretty good. Yes. But why would it be interesting or useful to know if somebody was retrieving a memory at any given time? Well, one of the potential applications is in the use of lie detector screenings. So imagine a criminal proceeding. The, you could have the old polygraph test for lie detection, but... These days, we all know that that is highly unreliable. A lot of experts refer to it pretty explicitly as pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not generally accepted these days. Well, I think actually some jurisdictions still use them for some purposes. But among yeah. the experts, they tend to say, like, no, you can't really rely on lie detector yeah. tests. Right. Now, Jonathan, I think you did a video on that for Brain Stuff, right? I did. Way back I, in the day. I've done a, I did a podcast, a tech stuff podcast, a long time ago <clears throat> about polygraphs and how you know, their study, they're, they're, they're keyed in to look for changes in physiological response. Yeah. But so like skin conductance or heart rate. Right. Or, yeah, it's, it's like Matt Murdock, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's Daredevil, but in electronic format. And, uh, and you can, uh, there's some people who just naturally don't care if they're lying. So mm-hmm. there's no real physiological change in their responses. There's some people who are, uh, so keyed up about being questioned that the, they're going to be giving off, uh, yeah. you know, false, false positives. False positives. Yeah. They're nervous um, or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there are just a lot of different ways that a polygraph machine can come, but really it's not even the machine, that the person interpreting the results from the polygraph machine can come to a mistaken conclusion. So they are not, as you say, they are not reliable. Yeah. Far from scientifically sound. So mm-hmm. since then, since we learned that, I think a lot of people in law enforcement and in the justice system have been yearning for a more scientifically sound way of evaluating the truth of somebody's testimony. Mm -hmm. So if a system like this fMRI scan were foolproof, it could actually make a great new type of lie detector test. For instance, the suspect accused of a crime claims never to have been present at the crime scene at all, never been there. Yet you hook him or her up to an fMRI machine and display a picture of the crime scene. Now, is that suspect showing internal brain scan signs of retrieving memories or of cataloging novel information? Sounds amazing, right? Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. that would be great. And, hey, we were just talking about a system that does that. Right, except apparently it's not foolproof and... Props to Professor Wagner for pointing this out himself. Uh, Yeah, he and his team uh, published in June of 2015 a study about how to beat their own system. Right. It was called Goal-Directed Modulation of Neural Memory Patterns, Implications for FMRI-Based Memory Detection in the Journal of Neuroscience. Uh, Right, because they they wanted to test their method in non-cooperative subjects, deceptive subjects, you know, like people taking lie detector tests may sometimes be. So... Wagner and his team set up a trial in which 24 subjects devoted two days to looking at faces while hanging out in an fMRI. Sounds like a party. Super party. On the first day, they were shown 200 faces, 200 hypothetically novel faces, for two seconds each, then given eight seconds to invent a story to go along with the face. Uh, The researchers instructed them to do this with the idea that it would help the subjects form a memory about the face, you know, like kind of trick their brain into thinking it was something worth saving. The researchers then shuffled the photos around and the subjects repeated the exercise. And during the second pass, their algorithm was able to detect whether the subjects were experiencing memories about 67% of the time. 
Okay. Pretty good baseline. So it's way above chance. Yeah, yeah, way, way above a 50-50 shot, sure. Uh, day two, the researchers added 200 new faces to the original batch and then shuffled the photos into two separate sets. During the first set, the subjects were supposed to react to each face uh, as usual, you know, honestly, either recognize the face or experience it for the first time. Then during the second set, the researchers asked them to try to fool the machine, meaning that for faces they remembered, the subjects were asked to focus on things about the photo that they hadn't noticed the first time around, to kind of distract themselves from calling up their memory of it. Right, the, what buttons are on their shirt or something. Sure, the lighting, some something weird about, I don't know, the background, whatever. Uh, and for new faces, they were asked to recall something or someone that the photo reminded them of in as much detail as possible. Oh, so it might be like, all right, this picture of a stranger looks an awful lot like an uncle. I have. So I'm going to think about my uncle while I'm looking at this picture of a stranger, and that's going to be as if I were actually remembering this person. And why my uncle suspiciously owns a scorpion farm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of repressed memories you guys have been bringing back for this whole, this whole episode. So, so during during this uh, the second trial, the algorithm's proficiency dropped to only fifty percent with the the deceptive subjects. Okay. So that that is no better than a coin flip. Um, it, it was, I should say, easier for them to fake memories than it was for them to conceal memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me in the same way that it seems like it'd be easier to make up lies and pretend you knew somebody with words than it would be to like hide the recognition in your face when you see somebody you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, this is why I'm a really bad actor, because when people say things to me, I can't be surprised if if I've heard it 98 times in rehearsal. I'm just like, yeah, no, that's just you words. You can't be in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. I'm a bad actor, too. I only know my cue lines and my lines. The rest <laughs> of the show, I, it's not important. <laughs> I'm not in it. I don't care. I have no idea what it's even about. Hamlet's about this guy who comes in to the Danish uh, uh, royal court and sees that everybody's dead. Oh. And, and then he has to go back and report to the King of England. That's what Hamlet's all That's about. That's a short story, but it yeah. sounds kind of interesting. There's a lot of preamble. Oh, but, okay. You know, like, I thought you were going to say Hamlet's about a guy who meets a gravedigger once. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it would be about a gravedigger who meets this totally nutso Danish prince. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so based on all of these results, Wagner and his team are recommending and, and themselves constructing more research into, into deception and stress and, and how memories are, are made and recalled under those kind of circumstances because they suspect that a suspect trying too hard to be honest, uh, might also throw the results. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, though I would say the interesting thing to me about this is that we're not at – I would say we're probably not at the peak of interpreting these results yet either. So no. No. I, I would say that fMRI scanning uh, for lie detection probably can get better than it is. And who knows? We may end up with a system that's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, At least we could end up with a system that could lead us to – possible further investigation. Yeah, yeah. Now, I hope nobody's ever just convicted on the basis of a test like Yeah, this. I would imagine it would be more, at least I think the ideal implementation of this would be you are in the investigation phase and this is a means of finding out if the, the lead you are on, if you're on the right track or if you need to switch gears very quickly as opposed to this is the, the piece of evidence that the whole case hinges upon. That I would definitely be a lot more concerned about. Um, so let's talk about, let's go, let's say that we've figured out the basics here. Uh, let's say, let's go ahead, what? I don't know, 20 to 40 years? <laughs> I love that song. Now we've now we figured it out. Uh, let's say, do you think by that time we'll get to this point where we can uh, share memories directly in some me- manner, whether it's brain to brain communication or brain to computer or, or you know some other variation that we haven't even thought of yet? I feel like it's really hard to say because we haven't really seen anything like that yet. And to be honest, I've from what I've read, a lot of the people who 
predict that we'll be able to download our memories into a computer or more precisely, maybe it should be upload our memories to a computer. Mm-hmm. The basis they often seem to have for saying this is just sort of general stuff about how great technology is. I, You know, I've read several like opinion pieces saying, oh, by 2050, we'll be able to put our brains in computers because... Look at how amazing our gaming consoles are today. They're so much <laughs> yeah. more powerful than the computers of the 1980s. And that of, just seems to me to say, well, like, oh, well, I understand our computers are much more powerful, but I'm not sure if this is dealing with the specifics of the problem. They're, they're applying the concept of Moore's Law right. universally across all disciplines, and that is not the way Moore's Law works right. or the way the other disciplines work. Yeah, well, Moore's Law might not even work that way for for computer space yeah, yeah. for much longer. Time, yeah, so. yeah you, you might end up with a computer that uh, by volume is much, much more powerful than a human brain. But so what? I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean you've conquered this translating problem. Like where can you actually extract the semantic value of these structures in your brain and say, here's what this memory is about in a way that would make sense to a machine or to another person. And we even got to a point, Joe and I were talking before the the podcast started, about how uh, in this world, let's say that we have entered a world where we are able to share a memory directly to another person in this brain-to-brain communication. We can't even be sure that the memory the other person receives is going to be similar to the memory we have. For In other words... Lauren, you have a concept in your head about what the color red is, and you have a concept in your head about what a bicycle looks like, and your version may be similar but different to the one that I have in my head, and I'm I'm sharing a memory with you about a red bicycle I saw. Now, in that technology, would you be experiencing my memory kind of the way you would if you went to see a movie, where the two of us philosophical uh, subtleties aside are are witnessing the same thing it's or, a visual field of information or mm-hmm. would you in fact be experiencing my memory but based upon your concepts of what red and bicycle are uh sure so with with my picture of a red bicycle and my picture of my aunt who is riding it mm-hmm. not your aunt right so we we can't be sure if we get to a point where we can do this sort of memory sharing thing that the the individual elements of the memory will be true to the person who actually experienced it or if it'll be like like you know i i tell you how to make something so you end up using the stuff you have around you to make the same thing okay well let's say that we never do figure out a way to decode like the semantic contents of your memory, you know, mm. that we can look at your brain, we can analyze what's going on in it, but we just have no way to connect that to actual information. We just see stuff's lighting up. Yeah. We never find the codec to, to right. decode and recode that. Like, like you're literally looking at a giant panel of light bulbs and you see that certain light bulbs are flashing on and off, but you have no context yeah. for what that means. There's there's no red bicycle memory center of the brain right. that's universal across <laughs> humanity, which seems pretty likely to yeah. me that that yeah. is not a, a fact, mm-hmm. a thing that can be discovered. Uh, but who knows? There's still one obvious way that we would be able to outsource memory recall, which is that we could outsource memory recording. So in other words, we have some means of recording what's going on around us at any time when we would be focusing on it anyway. So we have an actual record of what's happening, not just a, a reconstruction of what is happening. A actual ones and zeros kind of record, yeah? Yeah, so the idea here is, uh, again, to bring up the horrific British sci-fi series Black Mirror. There yeah. is one episode where characters have a technology that allows them to recall basically everything they've ever seen. Right. They have an implant that just records it all. Now, I don't think it's explicit in the episode exactly how that works. Like, is it trying to recall things from their brain, from their memories? I don't think so. I think it's actually a third-party storage system. Yeah, uh, that- yeah I agree. The, yeah, I think so. That's essentially it's it's using your sensory organs as the cam- camera yeah. and microphone, mm-hmm. but and as the the screen mm-hmm. to play back on. It's both. Yeah. So if you were to have some kind of 
third-party technology camera implanted in your head, whether it's actually using your eyes as a lens or it's just a little camera on your head somewhere, and then it's attached to a solid-state drive in your skull, and it's just keeping it as some, you know, whatever kind of arbitrary media format that can be interpreted later, this would ensure that encoding and decoding could be compatible and you could have recording of everything you see. Yeah, it's just not memory. Right. It's not your memory. It would right? be third it's party different. from front to back. It, it'd be essentially the same thing as if you had uh, a cell phone with a with a camera on it recording everything, you know, facing out from you. And again, you would you wouldn't say these are my memories. You would just say here's some video of stuff that happened where I was. <laughs> right, right. And uh, as you know, those of us who have watched Black Mirror saw that might not go very well socially speaking. No, for yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it pretty convincingly made the case that this is not really something you want in your life. Uh, yeah, nobody really wants total recall of of everything that happened around them. I mean, I, I kind of am comfortable in, in this cloudy mist of possibility that is my past. My past is getting cloudier by the minute. So let's go <laughs> ahead and wrap this up. only thing I want Total Recall of is the Paul Verhoeven movie Total Recall. That's fair. Well, while I cannot guarantee that you will have that, I can at least get you a copy Come of the Come on, DVD. Jonathan. Open your mind. All right. So anyway, we're going to wrap this up for realsies now. This has been a really interesting topic to look into, and uh, I am curious to see where this technology and our understanding of the brain goes. And maybe maybe what we're talking about here, right now it seems like it's really improbable, maybe, maybe impossible to do. But who knows? Perhaps in 20 to 40 years... We'll find out that it's commonplace and that the things we're thinking about are small potatoes compared to what's actually achievable. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. I'm kind of disappointed that we couldn't say something more definite, but I think we just don't have very much knowledge about what's possible in this realm today. Yeah, it comes back to that that problem of us not having that much information about our own bodies. Uh, Despite all of the amazing science and technology that we have, we are ourselves still kind of mysterious. To me, that is the most exciting thing, though, because it means there's so much more to learn. And uh, I I can't wait to to read up on this stuff because it's really, really cool. Now, I have a question for all of our listeners out there. If there is a subject about which you want to know more, whether it's something that we've covered in this episode, maybe a past episode, or something you just would like us to cover in the future, I would like you to let us know about it. We love getting your feedback. Uh, You guys are awesome. Keep it coming. The email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com, or you can always drop us a line on Twitter, Google+, or Facebook. At Twitter and Google+, we are fwthinking. You can search fwthinking in Facebook, and a little search bar will pop up. Leave us a message and tell us what you think. We love hearing from you, and you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. 
We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.